The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Today's episode marks the end of our first season and the last in a series of conversations with leaders in the field of education philanthropy who are working to build more human-centered schools, experiences, and ecosystems. I'm excited to welcome my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jislen Ngunu. This month marks a big professional and personal moment for her. After four years at the Nellie May Education Foundation, a tenure that included serving as Vice President of Strategy and Programs, and Interim President and CEO, Gislen is transitioning into her next chapter. I've been reflecting recently on how often our dominant culture pushes us to move from one moment to the next so quickly that we seldom take time to sit in what Gislen described in her closing letter to the Nellie May community as the in-between space that exists between endings and beginnings. I'm inspired by her commitment at this moment of transition to take time to rest, reflect, heal, and dream. As she says, I look forward to existing in the glorious space that makes room to be fully present, to listen deeply, and to be in community. I look forward to authoring and manifesting the next chapter when the time comes. I always appreciate my conversations with Gislen, and today's is no exception. Join me as we cover the gamut from how her personal identity informs her commitment and approach to educational transformation, generational perspectives on social change, the limits of philanthropy, and perhaps most importantly, reflections on what kind of an ancestor she hopes to be. Gislen, I am so excited for our conversation today. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here. It's so So, good to see you. It's good to see you, Um, and I'm really hoping that you and I can have the sort of conversation that we usually do, um, because that's really what's going to be fun for both. There you go. (laughs) I hope so. Uh, But I, but I do know that there are people listening who don't know you, and so I want to start with your personal story, since um, you and I both know that our personal journeys shape the perspectives that we bring to our work. Mm -hmm. So, what do listeners need to know about the unique perspective that you're bringing to this conversation? Thank you, Olka. I I love that question. And I like to start at my origin story. I was born and raised in Cameroon, Central Africa. So my experience, my lived experience, right, especially through high school, is really informed by that particular context. And it was a context that is very african And by that, I mean, most people look like me um, growing up. And I was born in the capital of Yaoundé, and it was the city. And as a city kid, as my grandmother called me back then, I also very much 
benefited from the knowledge and the wisdom of my grandparents who lived in the village, right? And the village is a rural, very indigenous area. And my parents were very intentional about making sure that multiple times a year, we spend time with our grandparents, with our elders and cousins who lived in the village. So they shipped us all there. So I feel like that context really informed my experience as someone who lived, as a kid who lived in the city, but also tapped into the value of, you know, my elders and learned the history of my family and in ways that I took for granted growing up, you know, there was no electricity at my grandmother's house. So I, as a kid, as a seven or eight year old, I would complain you know, about spending two weeks there. And as an adult now, I have so much, so much gratitude for for those experiences. And as you and I know, um, when I shared that, Cameroon was also colonized, right? Like much of Africa. So my schooling experience was also really heavily influenced by the beliefs and the values and the practices that came from Western culture. And as a result, right, like I grew up in what in the book, in your awesome book, you call these Cartesian Newtonian um, model and, and worldview, but that was also um, countered by, you know, tradition and ways of being that were more collectivist and by a sense of community and a larger village that really, I think, helped to make me who I am. So fast forward to moving to the United States after high school and coming here as a 16-year-old and being an African woman, Black woman in this country, I feel like my experiences have really shaped how I can't help but see education from a very global lens. And I also can't help but think about education and knowledge from the perspectives of the people who are in a particular place. And I also can't help but think about education and the world from a very intersectional lens, right? Because we live complex, nuanced lives. And I try to take that approach to the work that I do and to how I navigate the world. Um, yeah. Hmm. So that's a little bit of where I started and how I show up today and how I understand the work of education that we do and really the work of um, social justice and liberation that we do, because that's really what it's about for me at its core. Part of what I love about these conversations is when someone else says something and it resonates and what you were saying about, you know, being shipped off, you know, by your parents (laughs) to the village. I mean, I spent, you know, I grew up in Tanzania. So I was like in those smaller areas, like in Arusha and outside, but then I spent my summers in Botswana during middle school. And I sort of, whether my parents were conscious of it or not, Mm -hmm. it's exactly what you said, which is this kind of countering to the dominant culture that I was growing up in and sort mm-hmm. of just I- experiencing it in a different way. So it, um, yeah. that makes a ton of sense. Can I add and one it, more thing to that? Yeah. Because it's also fascinating, right? Like I'm very proudly African. And as I was preparing for our conversation, I also think about 
or thought about the fact that my last two years of high school was very were very pivotal for me. Like my mother worked super hard seven days a week to make sure that my last two years of high school were spent in this private French school, right? That was supposed to set me up for opportunities and success. And, you know, that particular degree from the school that looked very different than anything I had ever experienced uh, was known as the, the dominant currency and as the gateway to, you know, um, a better future. And it was the first time in my life that I was in a place where, you know, being Black was not the dominant culture. Um it was the first time in my life I had white teachers. It was also the first time I really paid attention to class differences, you know, because all of a sudden I was in a school that mm. was better resourced. Um, I had experiences in classes that were, you know, for all intent and purposes, like far better equipped than what I've had before. And as much as I was grateful to be in that space and to be learning there, I also grew very angry, right? And had and developed a different consciousness about what inequities look like. And that followed me when I moved to America. And I couldn't help and see what I had learned as a teenager. Well, it's so evident when you're growing up in a place that was colonized mm -hmm. in a way that it isn't necessarily in the U.S. to folks who have lived only here, right? Those extremes, because the way to get out, my older brothers, like our friends, it was the way you got out, but it you is. had to sort of then go into the dominant system, But it's, and it's very visible. Um, and w the same thing exists here, mm -hmm. and we tend to think of it as a as an American phenomenon, but it isn't. So that takes me to this um and a big question, but I want to start with it because I do tend to understand things within the sociocultural framing that you mentioned sort of in the book and in this podcast, right? The idea that our dominant culture has been shaped by mm -hmm. this Cartesian Newtonian worldview. So a set of values and assumptions about ourselves as human beings, our relationship to the world and other beings, um, ideas of what knowledge is, who creates it. And those values were birthed in Western Europe at a particular time that was steeped in fear and scarcity. And so the mindset and the trauma that came from that was then exported around the world through colonization. And those values manifest in the world today as all kinds of isms, right? Racism, sexism, capital, unrestrained capitalism, paternalism, um, anthropocentrism. So, and you've talked a little bit about this, but like, what are some of the biggest ways in which being able to exist in a more holistic indigenous space, even as you were surrounded mm -hmm. by this kind of colonial experience, how, like, what are some of the biggest principles that shape how you see your work today? Hmm. Oh, gosh. I have so much respect for these questions. Okay, you're making me think. No, I have to give a shout out to um, some of my teachers growing up. You know, Mrs. Yap Lebok, Francoise. She was my French teacher, um, my ninth and tenth grade year, and she was amazing. She was young, and the reason why I still think about her and I'm still connected to her. Uh, she's in Cameroon is because she opened up her house to her students. So we were in school, right? Like formal school, Monday through Friday. And Wednesday afternoon was 
like we had open space and her house was an open space. So I grew accustomed to hanging out with her and some of my peers on Wednesday afternoons and on Saturdays, just going through her books and having conversations about our experiences in and outside of school. And she saw me in a way that I just took for granted, right? Like really saw me. So I like lift up that story because it is such a reminder to me that I grew up in a place where, yes, we had school, but it was also very clear that learning didn't only happen within the walls and the confines of these places that we call classrooms. Learning was everywhere. So in that story, learning was in the neighborhood at Mrs. Yap's house, right, which was the place to be. Um, to be a cool kid. And learning was also spending time um, during the summer, as I was saying, with my grandmother in the village and my cousins sitting on the front steps of her mud house, like hearing her tell stories of our lineage and tell st stories of our ancestors, right? So I will say that notion of learning happens anywhere. And a lot of it happens outside of the formal walls of schools is something that shapes my work and how I approach it. But also this respect for culture, right? And other ways of knowing and being. My grandmother is a uh, hundred and two or hundred and three, depending on who you ask in my family. Wow. And she's still alive, right? And she has no formal schooling. And she's someone that I consider to be, she's one of the wisest souls I know because of the stories that she told and the things that she thought me and my siblings and my cousins as children that I carry. So the importance of indigenous learning and valuing funds of knowledge that come from um, multiple sources is really, really important. Um, I'll say my work is also shaped by this sense of community and, and, and collectivism that was more prevalent in my own upbringing, right? Being able to spend time at your teacher's house. Um, that's not something that is common here. Or being able to, you know, be in community with your friends in places that you knew you were safe because your family and those who were in charge of you knew that you were cared for by a larger village. And the last thing I will say there is when I moved to the States, Oka, for college, the questions that were asked of me by peers who were just curious about where I came from were really surprising and really shocking. Like folks who had no understanding or no sense of where Cameroon was, right? And who were very surprised that I had gone to school before coming here. And it was mm -hmm. so interesting and shocking because, you know, I was used to learning in a context where it was really, really important to learn global histories and to learn about other people in Africa, you know, in Europe, in America. That was just a given, right? And it was an expectation. So when I moved here, I was really surprised to, to, to learn about how narrowly constructed learning is, how narrowly defined content and curriculum is, and how low 
um, the expectations are that we have for children and young people. So those are some of the things that kind of shape how I approach yeah. my work today. Hmm. I, I think that's such an important point because I think it also opens the door in this conversation about what's the future we're looking for, that it's a future where the expectations for all young people are heightened and enriched, right? It's not a zero sum that it somehow no. is just for this group or just for that group. It's for everybody because in a way, everybody is suffering and mm-hmm. struggling under sort of this dominant way that we think about school and education. Uh, I've been thinking a lot recently, and and this is we're going to go into almost like our you know evening happy hour conversations. But I'm thinking <laughs> a lot about this term, uh, white supremacy culture. Um, and no, more, I'm only drinking water and tea right now. Like, <laughs> I know. Okay, bring it on, bring it on. <laughs> so I've I've been having conversations with people, and I'm curious your thoughts. So I I find it problematic enough that I'm trying now not to use it, which I know is not common in the circles that we're in. Um, First, I feel like it continues to center whiteness, which I think is really interesting given the conversations we're having. I also think that like the mindsets and the values and the ways of being that I think we're trying to point to when we use that term aren't distinct to America and American culture, Mm. as we've talked about. So even though race and whiteness have been overlaid onto them in the U.S. in very unique ways, like I've had experiences in my family and in Africa and in India of people, including black and brown people, who operate out of very similar mindsets and demonstrate the same kinds of behaviors. And we use the term internalized racism to kind of explain that away. But sometimes it seems to me that when we have to take a word and then cabinet and sort of say, yes, but this is the exception and this is the exception and this is the exception, it starts to muddy the waters. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts, especially given that we share the context of having that global perspective on mm-hmm. some of these things. Mm-hmm. I, f- I find that perspective so thought provoking. And the first time you said it to me, I was like, okay, let me pause and think about how I think about this and how I feel about it. And it made me like go through some of my conversations with my mother, with folks in Cameroon. And I'm like, wait, do I ever, have I ever heard them use the term white supremacy culture? And the answer is no. Right. And when I recollect our conversations, you know, they, and we, when I'm in communication with them. We talk about Western culture. We talk about white people, not white supremacy culture. And we talk a lot about colonization and like colonized mindsets. Right. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I need to continue to think about why that is the case. But it makes me think about the importance of context and the importance of shared language. I I use white supremacy culture, right? Like I use it more explicitly then you know especially in the last i would say in the last 5 years um i have grown to like understand the value and the importance of being very explicit about that language in certain situations while also appreciating what you're describing olka right like it does continue to center whiteness in in you know the term does center whiteness And it also can be very polarizing when we are trying to move um, conversations and and, and work forward and when we are doing the work to invite people 
to be critical about their understanding of the world, um, it can be very polarizing, especially in the sociopolitical context that we live in. Now, while the term is imperfect, I find it to be one of the better concepts that encompasses the the depth and the breadth of the dominant norms, i.e. white middle-class norms, that we are all required and expected to navigate, both in the USA and, to your point, abroad, right? Like, there are certain norms that we all live with, and those norms, you know, have white middle-class values um, attached to them. And I wish there was a better term because I I hear you on using the thing that we don't want to define and the the thing the thing that we want to dismantle and the world we want to create. I struggle with that too. But I, as a black woman, I have found it to be one of the better concept that like helps me have people tell the truth about the world that we live in and understand the gravity of how whiteness and racism and white ideology impacts all of our lives without, um, what word am I looking for? Without tempering conversations and without attending to the comfort of those with power, Mm -hmm. right? Or agency to make changes. I'm really thankful to Thima Okun, right, who first wrote the article back in 1999 around white supremacy culture. And one thing that I'm learning to do is to not only call out white supremacy culture explicitly, but to learn how to practice and to learn how to define ourselves how to ask questions and how to engage in conversations from a place of dreaming, articulating and manifesting the world that we want. Right. And because of that, I find the antidotes that Tima Kuhn and others have created alongside the characteristics of white supremacy culture to be very, very helpful um, and to provide some concrete ways for people to practice different ways of being but it's hard for me to talk about those antidotes and those, you know, I'm like, okay, what, what's the world that we want to be? How do we really want to be? It's hard for me to talk about that set of antidotes, right, that also give us shared language to build and to manifest a different world without also talking about the thing that we need to stop doing um, and that we mm-hmm. want to dismantle, right? So I see it as a both and. Yeah. But to your point, you know, yeah. I calculate when when it, it does not help me and help us to use that concept to move us forward. Yeah, no, I, and I, I appreciate the nuance of that. You know, when I when I said I try not to use it, I think yeah. I'm probably just much more thoughtful now about when I do use it because usefulness really is a big piece of it. And I heard Dr. Jamar Tisby, and it was a mostly white audience this weekend when I went to his workshop. And he said a couple of things that I thought were so interesting and sort of in that group, he used the term, but he backed off a little bit. And one of the things he said is, you know, we're going to try and create a space where what we feel is collective grief, Mm. not guilt, Mm. because there should be a grief for all of us that like we live in a world that, that 
hurts our humanity this way because it hurts you as white people as well. And then the other thing he said, which I thought was really interesting, was he was telling white people to write their um, racial autobiography because he said in some ways white people need to disconnect whiteness from them. So even though you're white, you became white when you came here because of these dominant norms and cultures yes. and constructs that said, yes. oh, first you were Italian, first you were Irish, <laughs> now you're white. Yes. Um, but you have food, you have songs, you have cultures, you have, and if you can write that history, then all of a sudden, you know, this term like white supremacy culture, you can disconnect the whiteness from your identity. And I just... I've been appreciating the nuanced conversations mm -hmm. and sort of perspectives that I've been hearing um, mm -hmm. around this term. So, yeah. yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful. It makes me think about the work of Dr. Greg Carr, who is at um, Howard University, right? And he's one of his concentrations around Africana studies, you know, and he always pushes students to think about, you know, how... Like one question that I've heard him ask several times is, you know, who are black people to themselves, and how do we practice defining ourselves, like us defining ourselves outside of the, the the gaze and the centering of whiteness? And once you ask that question, and you really attempt to answer, like, who are we to each other mm. outside of whiteness and and its gaze, um, it actually creates space for. Mm imagination and for creation. So I was laughing when you said kind of the dominant norms, because before this, uh, this conversation, you were saying, I'm going to talk with my hands, you know, and I'm sort of, I have different groups. And in some of my groups, particularly groups of like South Asian women or my black and brown female friends and spaces, there's a lot of hand waving. There's a yes. lot of like accidentally knocking the waiters and restaurants. There's a lot of movement. Yeah. And I a know, lot of talking over the, each other, right? I spilled a glass of red wine two nights ago because I was talking with my hands and, you know, our yeah. bodies move and it's a, uh, you know. Yeah, it's a thing. It's it a is thing. a thing. It, and it is a part of how we express ourselves outside of white supremacy culture. So I want to move us to conversations about gener generational differences in racial equity work, which um, we've we've talked about in the past. Um, I was there's an article which I'll link in the notes called Generational Differences in Racial Equity Work by Dex Devlin Ross. And he said the people leading nonprofits today were molded and shaped, promoted and rewarded within a social and political context that was fixated on puring accountability and metrics. And in doing that, it wasn't selling out so much as making it work. People who stuck around and rose in the ranks accepted that the nonprofit sector wasn't a space for radical systems change works. And they said it was better to do the work inside than to not do it. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. I'm curious if you've seen this play out in your own profession, since you're certainly, I think, one of the younger generation um, of activists and doing racial justice work. Whew. I love that article too. And I do return to it often. And I don't know if I'm the up and comer. You know how he describes up and comers yeah. and elders. I or feel like when somewhere I, in the middle. <laughs> I feel like when I read it, there were moments I was like, "Wait, have I become an elder? Am I an yeah. elder? Let me sit with that, right?" Especially as I think about some of uh, my younger colleagues and 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 friends and siblings in this work. I'm like, I think I'm an elder. Yeah. But it it does come up, right? Like the passage you just read really resonates. 
in that, in my experience, you know, I will speak about myself as an up and comer, right? Like being in conversation with respected elders who I value tremendously and who have such powerful stories to tell about the glass ceilings that they've shattered and the ways in which they have, you know, knocked down barriers in, in, in this work that we all care about. And it makes me think about, it makes me appreciate, right? Like the, 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 the pain and the labor that they, that they, they, they put in and went through to get to where they are. And I will say it's also really heartbreaking because I see a pattern of unhealed pain um, that manifests itself in some of the relationships that I have with them, where it's very, very hard to create space for other ways of analyzing issues. It's really hard to create space for um, new ways of, of thinking, right? Because they are so um, deeply rooted in, 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 in what they've gone through and in understanding that you make it work, right? You work around things and, you know, change is incremental and look, look how far we've come, um, which, you know, it's to be respected. And I really yearn for better ways to honor the legacy that they have and, learn from them so that we can continue to build and also so we can understand the things that haven't worked. You know, we can understand the places and the contours of the mistakes um, and the setbacks that they, 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 they've made and had um, because there's no need to repeat those mistakes. We have way too much work to do. So I, I do think that we have some tensions there in figuring out how to really codify and honor the the like all of the things that you know our elders have done as when I would consider myself an up and comers I'm like that is a area of a work in, in in progress and I'm also impatient if I'm honest right because it is so hard at times to help our elders feel settled in all that they've accomplished and create space for some of us who are younger, right, to try to make our own mistakes, knowing that, you know, trying and failing fast um, is part of the part of the journey. Right. So I get frustrated and I get really, really tired to figure mm-hmm. out how to create this space for intergenerational dialogue and for intergenerational work where we honor the legacy of our elders and shift the role that they play in helping us continue to work towards collective liberation. There were there were a couple of words that were coming to my mind as you were talking. One is healing, mm-hmm. right? But this idea of like helping so many, not even actually, allowing ourselves and so many others to actually heal from the sort of damage that's been done in the context and in the work that we've done. Mm-hmm. But that intergenerational transfer like in the US, that's particularly hard yes. because there isn't a concept of elder, right? When I think about my culture, how you were describing sort of your grandmother, I went to a Native American um, philanthropy conference and I was in a number of the sessions and there was this really beautiful interplay of like the, the younger people 
saying to their elders, yes, we're learning from you, but then the elders very explicitly saying what you said, which is actually it's time for us to pass the baton and we're going to share and then step back. And we just don't have any constructs for that in our dominant culture. And it's sort of like, well, if I retire, who will I be? What will I do? Mm. What will my identity be? Yes. I'm not sure what to do with that, but it does feel like a really important kind of conversation to be having in this mm-hmm. moment with mm-hmm. this retirements coming up and two generations through almost three that are going to want to be like shaping the world in more um, profound ways. Mm-hmm. So. No, that is so, that is so key. We have so much healing work to do. Like in the article that you lifted up, you know, I know that there is a place where he talks about how the pain people feel is real, Right. But like he's talking about it in the context of elders understanding what younger leaders, activists, generations are feeling and how, you know, elders can be quickly dismissive and say things like, oh, been there, done that. Right. Or it's overblown. Or back in the day when we Mm -hmm. went through X, Y and Z, it's like, okay, yes. And and when I read that, you know, the pain people feel is real. It also made me think about the pain that elders carry. And the fear that you're describing. Um, And it is, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's unhealed pain, right? Especially when you experience or hear, like I've been in conversations in multiple settings where I hear, you know, that's just what we have to do to get there, right? Like you have to like be hurt. You have to um, put in the work and you get hurt and you take it. And that's how we got to where we are. And yes, I'm like, there's so much pain. But how do we like one ensure that you can like heal from those experiences? But I'm also of the belief that when we are in positions, especially these positions of power and privilege, no matter how hard we've worked to get where to where we are, it is part of our responsibility to make sure that we move in a way that makes things a bit easier for future generations, for those who come after us. Mm-hmm. Right. So just because I had to you know, get burned and pay so many costs. I'm like, no, I don't want the person who comes after me or who is younger to experience that just because that's how it is. Yeah. yeah. I know. It scares me every once in a while when I start thinking like the elder, exactly what you said. I'm like, oh my God. And I do. (laughs) I am guilty. I am guilty. And I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that's why the intergenerational space and those j- relationships are really, really important because I think they they help us stay aware, right? And they help us stay grounded because you can where see. Are some, hmm? Yeah. Where are some of the places you find that intergenerational kind of space in the U.S. and in your professional and personal life right now? I, I, I'm not seeing it at scale or in widespread ways, I see it more in informal circles. You know how you and I often talk about, oh gosh, what are we seeing? What are we experiencing? So I'm seeing it in like informal groups of women in philanthropy who are deciding to form a circle, right? Or or a network because we share values and we really want to um, disrupt this pattern of, of generational tensions that actually, quite frankly, slow down the progress that we all want to see. 
you know, both from a younger generation that is like, the world is on fire and we're not going to have a future. And elders who are like, we work so, so hard and we don't want to see it all go down in flames. So I'm seeing it more in my informal relationships and, and the circles and the networks that I'm forging with people who are in this work and people who are in my personal life. You keep, I keep coming back to the concept of a village, right? And in mm -hmm. villages, which is how human beings generally have lived, all of this happens naturally. And it's so hard these days where we move and we're spread out and we don't have consistent communities unless we very intentionally build them. Yeah. It's so hard to know how to, how to kind of create those spaces in for like the periods of time, right? So that it's long enough that you're in them, that they're consistent enough that you're in them, that you can actually kind of get yeah. some of that healing to happen. It's um, so hard and it's not. So educational. Oh. No, I was going to mm -hmm. say it's so hard yeah, and that's it's true. not, right? Because if we do believe, so I have a, I have a coach who is amazing, right? Like an older black woman whose um, purpose in this chapter of life, her words, not mine, are to make sure that younger women, mm -hmm. especially younger women of color, are like running everything. Right? It's how she talks about it. Hmm. And one of the exercises that she has me and others do often is to visualize the world that we want to live in in our 60s and to really spend time describing it and drawing it and materializing hmm. it on paper and then... She asked, like, okay, what steps should you be taking now to, like, for that to be true? And that always comes up, Oka, right? Like, this notion of, like, okay, how do we create community? Even though we move and we're, like, spread out and we're all busy, I think it is possible. And we need to be more intentional. And we need to see value in that so that we resource those kind of spaces and, and people who have... The, the interests and the, the skill and the knowledge to actually hold and curate them, right? So that they actually become something that is more sustained um, in our lives. So that's a really nice transition because I want to move into philanthropy because mm -hmm. what you just described is so beautiful. And yet I can imagine someone being like, yes, but how do I know that that money was effective? Or how yeah. do I know that the return on investment was really hard? So so what's I want to back up for a minute because educational, what's the impact? That's right. What's the <laughs> impact and how are we going to measure it? And how will we know beyond 25 people telling us that it was really, really valuable? Anyway, but <laughs> let, let's back up. So educational philanthropy has certainly diversified um, its ranks, but there are very few um, Black female leaders um, of foundations. And I'm curious about some of the insights you've gained uh, during this tenure with Nellie May and some of the lessons you're taking away. Whew. The work is hard and can be exhausting and necessary because philanthropy, I, I often say, can like suck your soul and make you forget your your purpose and, and, and your calling and make you second guess what you know. Um, and especially what you know at like your, your inner core level, right? Like that inner wisdom, like philanthropy is not designed. Can you give me an example of that? To follow to the wisdom real? of like, black What's a moment where there's women. something? What's a moment? Yeah. You know, the example that you were lifting, yeah. right, Olka, it's, 
as a black woman leader in philanthropy, being in conversations, if not daily, weekly, with people of color, black people, black women who are doing this work of liberation, who share stories, right? And coming back to your institution and creating a space to talk about the value of resourcing wellness, well-being, rest, healing, and restoration, and knowing that you're in a core because you are a Black woman, and this is just a part of your lived experience, um, that this work is just as critical as, if not more, right, as all of the other bodies of work that we spend tons of money on. And to be met with, okay, what's all the research on that? And, you know, what's going to be the theory of change for it? You know, what's the data that you have to suggest that if we do this, if we actually like intentionally resource wellness and well-being and rest, right? I'd like adequate amounts. I'm not talking about, oh, let's give each grantee a $500, like gift card to go get a massage. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I'm like, yeah, that's nice too. We should do that. And that's not what I'm describing. I'm talking about adequate resources that are sustained and just built into how we do work uh, and how we do philanthropy. It's really hard, right? Because I'm like, my gut tells me that, like, I know that I'm at inner core because, you know, people are dying. People are getting sick. People are burning out. And quite frankly, you need black women to be well in this, in this, in this work and in this world. Because we do have data about black women continually, mm-hmm. continuously saving us and, and, and saving whatever remnants of democracy we have. So it may not all be in a study that I've done. You know? mm-hmm. um, so that's an example, right, of what I was saying. I was just, I was thinking somebody, you know, well, Elliot Washer from Big Picture Learning, the phrase he always used was everyone says evidence-based decision-making. And he's like, actually, it's decision-based evidence-making because you <laughs> tend to fund the research, right? Nobody's ever funded a study on sort of what we know about health or whatever. Like there are no, so it's like, we don't even have the data, which is why the whole democratizing yeah. evidence conversation is so important because yes. there are important questions that have never been funded to yes. study because we only study the things that we presume, right, are going to be the right things. And in the neoliberal kind of project of the last 30 years, yeah. like there there was a certain theory of change and therefore yeah. certain things that we thought were worth um, yeah. researching and measuring. Yeah. yeah. So some of the things that I've learned over the course of my tenure at Nellie Mays, one, it's critical to have us in these roles and in these positions, Olka. The conversations, the questions, the ways in which we disrupt the space are absolutely critical to ensuring that philanthropy does a better job at supporting investing in Black-led organizations and organizations led by people of color and by people with other marginalized identities. I see Black women doing that work far better than, than most other leaders and when I entered philanthropy, I almost re- like said no. I was like, I'm not sure this is what I want to do. But one thing I was very curious about was the fact that 
having this position, right? Having this position of leadership will allow me to also expand the table and keep the door wide open to cultivate leadership, the leadership of other women of color, of other Black women, of other people with marginalized identities to enter this sector um, if they weren't already in it or to have access to opportunities that allow people to see their brilliance because lived experience is a critical Mm-hmm. Um, form of evidence and expertise that is necessary in philanthropy. And I feel like I've been able to do that in some interesting ways at Nellie Mae. And I don't know that, you know, it will have been done had I not been been here. Mm-hmm. So how we open the door and how we cultivate spaces for others to also lead um, and, and reclaim our agency for how we allocate resources um, is really, really critical. Now, those are like awesome things and reasons to have more Black women in philanthropy. The rules of the game are also different, right, on on the flip side. Like the work, I was saying, the work is hard and exhausting and the, the expectations are different, which is not unique to philanthropy, right? Like I think about those lessons our parents, teachers, you have to work twice as hard or more to go half as far. I... I see that happening to Black women in philanthropy who work a whole lot harder than our white male colleagues and um, who pay the cost for it or who speak up and, and, and stand on, on values and principles that we hold or say we hold in philanthropy and end up um, paying some steep cost for doing so but continue to have the courage to do so. So those are some of my lessons uh, and Mm -hmm. some of the things that I'm taking away. So I want to, you open the door to philanthropy. So I want to go straight at it Um, because, uh, and this is part of the conversation um, in the last couple of years, which I think has been great because the very nature of American philanthropy in many of the ways we've already touched on, whether Mm -hmm. it's measuring impact, theories of change, and who shapes them, who's at the table, who's not at the table, they they feel at odds with all the conversation we're having now about racial justice and equity, right? And it's where the money comes from, how money was kept intentionally away from government, uh, public programs, right, to kind of stay with individuals um, who then got tax breaks. Um, The idea that wealthy white men um, in the beginning were in a position to tell community what they need. Mm -hmm. So is it possible, do you think, to reconcile philanthropy and racial justice? Ooh, I... I don't think so. Hmm. Any, you know, I, I don't think so. I am trying to be very honest with myself in this conversation, right? Like I think given what we know about the history of philanthropy and wealth building in this country and how much of philanthropy's wealth was acquired and accumulated and the systems that allows that wealth to continue to grow, right? At the times when most people are struggling in all sorts of ways, including economically. I think that for philanthropy to exist, right? Like these systems, you know, i.e. capitalism being one of them, have to continue to exist and thrive, right? And 
my understanding of racial justice being in this way where being this, you know, state of being, not just an aim that we have, where all people are flourishing, where we are are and have repaired the harm that has been done to those who've suffered the greatest cost and atrocities, you know. I put all of us in there, okay? I'm like, mm-hmm. you can think about racism, you can think about indigenous erasure, you can think about the experiences of Asian people in America. You know, I mean, in order to repair those harms, to make people whole, to redistribute resources in a way that everyone has what they need, to live well and to flourish and on their own terms. I don't know that you could do that under the systems and the, set, the structures that we currently have. And designing new systems and processes to govern ourselves as human beings will require that we do so, right? That design and that building while also actively working against and dismantling this system that perpetuates inequities and continues to harm and oppress various groups of folks. And for that to happen, I think if we're really going to do it and sustain this notion and world where racial justice is the world that we have, where freedom and liberation are not just ideals, but like, a state of being and the things that govern who we are. I don't think you can do that and have philanthropy continue to thrive. At least philanthropy as mm. we have it, which is all this wealth, right? Like, right. Um, now I know that as I say that there might, there will be listeners who like <laughs> completely disagree with me, which is completely mm. fine. But like over the last couple of years, one conversation that, We've been having at Nelly May, you know, given the various pandemics that we faced as people, right? Like COVID, racism, you know, economic like downfall, all of all of the above. Like we've been talking a lot about what our role is in this moment, you know, as we sit on all this money, right? While people across our communities and schools struggle, right? And are in pain. And it's led to some conversations around like how you make decision about protecting money for the future, right? Which is often an argument that we hear like, oh, we need to make sure that there's money because there'll always be inequities and there'll always be problems. So we have to protect money for the future, right? So it's like, okay, what's the right formula to think about how much of that money gets protected versus doing all that we can now to take care of the problems and the people that we have now to stop the, the, the bleeding so that we actually have a fighting chance um, as opposed to being super conservative in our approaches now. So the spend down perpetuity question I see as conversation and question I see as um, very connected to your question around like philanthropy and racial justice, like coexisting 
And I'm inspired by foundations and trustees and leaders in philanthropy who make the decision to to to, to spend down and 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 come up with approaches and and strategies to do that in a way that actually shifts the balance of power to communities as they work on sunsetting, right? Like foundations and philanthropic entities. Hmm. As you say that, I can hear not only some of our philanthropic listeners kind of gasping, but also some of our nonprofit leaders um, and players, right? Because we've sort of created this whole complex of institutions, organizations, et cetera, that depend on, right, this kind of funding and sort of, so what happens to them? And these are all questions, right, that we need to Yeah. And like one of these paradigm, right, and, 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 and model is also this like paradigm around scarcity that we operate with which effectively makes sure that a nonprofit organization might listen to this conversation and freak out, right? Because we operate under this model that is a zero-sum game. Resources are finite and um, they have to be dispersed at like a very mm-hmm. like incremental rate. I'm like, does it ha- is that the only way to be? I actually don't think so. And one question that is really of interest to me um, that I look forward to continuing to explore is around how to actually shift where perpetuity exists, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to philanthropy existing in perpetuity. We do know that many of these nonprofit organizations and other grassroots um, organizations and community-based programs are anchor and central, right, to what needs to happen in particular communities, and are better positioned, right, to actually make decisions about how the problems and how the, the you know, the needs are, are, are analyzed and also are better positioned to understand the solutions that need to be tried. I'm like, what if we shifted our energies to thinking about what it means to help these organizations, help organizations that are anchor? Um, and like central to communities live in perpetuity, right? And shifted our energies and efforts to helping them build endowments mm-hmm. um, and sunset philanthropy at large over a period of time. Like, I think if we were to do that well and in some form of scale, um, what, you're, what you were describing, right? In terms of nonprofit organizations that are struggling for resources all the time, we'll have less fear, right? Because we've shifted how we think about resources and who controls them. That's really interesting. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, in some ways, then they become part almost like the public sector, but sort of around, right? This kind of thing that stays for collective good and collective collective responsibility, which in theory is what government... um, is supposed to be, even though I think there are questions being being sowed um, very intentionally about that. Yeah. So where does trust-based philanthropy fit into all of this? Because I feel like that's the new buzzword right now um, mm-hmm. in, in philanthropy as we think about racial justice. Where does that fit into what you just described? Whew. You know, shout out to the Trust-Based Philanthropy Project, right, for creating a guide and, a, and, and some very clear dimensions and practices and recommendations for those of us who are trying to do this work better, right, to use. I'm proud to say that at Nellie Mae, 
in our grant-making approach, we've leaned more into trust-based philanthropy over the last few years. So while we still exist under a system of capitalism where most of philanthropy wants to hold on to resources and control them, um, trust-based philanthropy looks like giving multi-year unrestricted funding and living into the belief that those who are closer to the pain and closer to the issues are also better positioned to um, help us all design solutions and implement them. And we must, tr we must trust them to make decisions about how money is used. And then with that, it's also in understanding that change takes time, right? Moving away from what we were talking about and what we often talk about, Alka, like measures, right? Like, what are we going to see in terms of progress in the next year, in the next three years? I'm like, wait, it's taken us hundreds of years to get to where we are, right? Long-term, flexible funding is absolutely necessary for organizations and schools to actually help us create a different story of, of, of what's happening. And you know how much it takes to actually generate an application to receive funding but also all of the reporting requirements that come with that funding, right? So trust-based philanthropy is also about being super aware of that and simplifying and streamlining paperwork, right? So one concrete example of that is um, resourcing and paying organizations that have submitted applications without that, that aren't getting funding, right? Like paying them for the time and the effort that they put into that because we know those resources are needed. But it's also about getting really creative with what reporting looks like, right? Mm. Could reporting be a conversation? Um, could reporting be a video that a program officer then trans, you know, translates into something that makes sense to a board for future decisions, right? So that... The burden of, of the work does not live with the grantee partner, but really with philanthropy, because we, quite frankly, have more resources. I have this dream, like if you could do place-based philanthropy, like in a very real way, and we had Deanna um, James from St. Croix Foundation yes. kind of talking about this. But like, imagine I live in a city. Ideally, we would all articulate the outcomes we want pretty similarly, whether we work in health or housing or education. You want everyone to have a, a safe place to be. You mm -hmm. want every child to be fed. You want every adult to have the opportunity to work, right, and have dignity in there. So, like, what are those outcomes? And actually have those be the outcomes. And yes. what do you as an organization contribute to those various things without having to I don't know, like pull things apart, right? And kind of say, well, I do this body of work in this area. But, you know, that's sort of a pipe dream. But like, but it was part of what Deanna was sort of saying happens on St. Croix because it's an, a closed ecosystem where they took the time and did the work. And this goes back to the relationship building, right? Even two to three years of funding, like relationship building is hard and it takes time mm -hmm. and it takes time away from, in theory, the nonprofit or other people doing the work they're supposed to do in their day jobs. So, but relationships and like mm -hmm. shared vision. 
mm-hmm. can take two to three years yeah. to develop, right? And I yeah. love the I love what you said, which is like it took hundreds of years to get to this fragmented system that we have that doesn't operate in all sorts of ways. And so why do we think that it's going to be even 10 years or 20 years to undo it? Um, Absolutely. Yes. And I really, really love that um, episode of the podcast, right? It was about like a radical partnership and really just shifting. It was really inspiring. And, you know, what you just described might be a pipe dream, but then again, I'm like, why is it a pipe dream? Like, we can do this now, right? Like, another principle of trust-based philanthropy, Elka, is really offering support beyond the check, right? So there are these checks that, you know, get handed. And I'm like, speaking to my fellow funders, like, let's all move towards making most, if not all, of our grant making in a form of unrestricted general operating support as opposed to, like, these programmatic restricted grants that we give out, but like for something like what Deanna was describing to happen, right? Like as a funder, thinking about support beyond the check is about time. It's about, okay, what spaces do we have access to um, that like community members from the ecosystem can come together and actually build relationships, articulate common goals, right? And articulate like a time frame. And then, like, you know, what knowledge and tools and skills do they need to be in relationship together well to mobilize and to organize? All of those things cost, require resources, right? So as a trust-based philanthropist, having a really clear sense of, you know, checks are really nice. And communities, in terms of, like, figuring out what collective work and collective Uh, progress and impact looks like, like need way more than that. And we Mm. live in institutions where we have resources and networks and access, right? Um, That could be put to really good use. As you're saying that um, at our conference plenary, uh, Pam um, Cantor, one of our past guests, she talks a lot about what's the context we're creating. And you could say that same thing for what's the context we're creating for the communities that we're trying to serve, mm-hmm. the context in which they can do all the things you said. And so when we're thinking about impact, how do you measure context or how do you measure the health of a context, right? Which is, it is perception. It is what's the experience of the people inside of it. And it's not going to be perfect. It's not always going to be easy, but does it feel productive? Does it feel, um, you know, generative? Um, But imagine if we shifted the lens, at least in the initial part to say, well, we're actually going to care about process and context, Mm -hmm. understanding kind of the way you said that, you know, if this context exists, then we know this other work will happen um, Mm -hmm. because we just know it in our gut, right? Which isn't insane. If you Mm -hmm. have healthy context with related interconnected parts and people who work together, like good things can happen. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Context, conditions, relationships, those are all really valuable indicators of change happening, right? And since like we keep coming back to, you know, what foundations get stuck on, like we need to see progress and measures. One thing that has been really helpful to us at Nellie May is to really shift our mindsets and relationship to the word impact and change and attribution. Like there's just really no way to know that the dollars that are being 
allocated and invested in a given thing, in a given school, in a given project, in a given community are the things that are leading to change because context, because conditions, because relationships, because of the connectedness and the interdependencies, right? Like all these mm-hmm. things that we know. So getting more comfortable and, and humble with accepting that, okay, we want to be good contributors, right? This notion of like contribution versus attribution mm-hmm. um, is something that we've talked a lot about. And we've always talked about both, right? In the times I've been here, but I'm actually really hungry to see us just stop talking about attribution because it, it continues to be a distraction, quite yeah. frankly, and 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 compels us to ask, I think, some of the like some some questions that actually aren't the right questions, right? To be to be asking because we think that we are so powerful. Um, so really thinking about contribution and the role that we want to play. In, in, in collective work. Um, well, and it creates it, a hostile sort of space, even in the nonprofit sector, yes. right? Of those who are provided, because everyone's got a jockey, mm-hmm. again, for this limited amount of money. And how do I get, how do I claim the most attribution? So I get the most money so that I yeah. get the most. I mean, it's a, there's a toxicity that is generated in that, yeah. that sometimes you see and feel more or less. Yeah. Um, in the nonprofit yeah. space. Yeah. yeah. I'm also hopeful about, you know, some of the the evolution of the world of evaluation and measurement, you know, there's this new, like, focus on equitable evaluation. And I'm hoping it doesn't just become another buzz term. Okay. <laughs> you know, as folks like, oh, yeah, we engage in equitable evaluation now. But, like, that is also connected to trust-based philanthropy, right? right. And one thing that has helped us, and we work with the Center for Equitable Evaluation. I think that's their name. To kind of help us understand the relationship between the things that are within our control, you know, our sphere of control versus the things that are, the things that we can influence, right? Like the sphere of influence and knowing that in the short term, right? From the time that we do our own work to understanding organizations to the things that happen over the span of one to five years, those are all things within our sphere of control and things that we can influence um, so that, you know, then there is a sphere of aspiration, which are the longer term outcomes, right? Um, and the things that we can't claim. But hopefully we can say and, and tell stories about how we've contributed to, to those things. And those are the things we aspire to see in, mm-hmm. in the world. So getting really good at creating some like shared language, some like shared understanding of what these things mean and the pace of change has been really helpful to also helping us redefine what systems changes, right? And its levels. Yeah. I think though what you just said about, I hope this doesn't just become another buzzword and this kind of circles us back to the beginning of our conversation. It's why like, again, in this podcast, one of the sociocultural constructs is what are the values Mm -hmm. and assumptions and things that drive the more Cartesian Newtonian systems versus holistic indigenous ones. And the reality is that you and I and many people of color, right, have experienced both. And so we know the difference. And I think one of the challenges is that because this is a way of being, Mm -hmm. not something that you say, it becomes very hard if you can't 
kind of make the connection to actually this is because otherwise the dominant culture sucks it up, sucks it and up, basically like slaps the new label onto mm-hmm. the exact same work that was being done. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I just think in this moment, so many of us are trying to point at and slow down and sort of say like, this is deep work and it's about healing and it's about getting past the discomfort that you're going to feel when you exercise this different way of being because change is hard. Mm -hmm. And so how do we do that to keep the integrity of all of the words, right? And concepts we've just been saying. Can I say something funny? Yes. Okay. I mean, it might not I know. Be funny. There's been like no laughter. Yes, totally. No, it might not be funny, right? But like, I know, I, I think it goes back to um, the concept of white supremacy culture, right? Which you don't use sometimes, or you, we've both become more intentional about how and when we use it. But in what you were just describing, I'm like, no, okay. In order to shift those ways of being, especially for those of us who've operated in under both worldviews, right? Like, what do we do with urgency, right? And what do we do with this notion of objectivity? Um, and like, who has the power to decide, right? Like, we have to grapple. And there's so much unlearning that has to come with that, which, mm. again, I appreciate the white supremacy culture construct because I find help in the antidotes mm-hmm. as I do work with others who also need to unlearn and learn new ways of being and understanding. It, it at least gives me some tools and language, right? So yeah. like you're feeling some yeah, urgency that's... around seeing like change and measuring and, but like, why is that construct under the Cartesian um, Newtonian worldview more objective says who right right so anyway right i was appreciating Although then we've just talked about the upcoming generation right that kind of is also feeling urgency it's very difficult we want them to feel urgency we just, we're like so in different contexts right so so i want to start closing because i know i'm standing between you and your best life um <laughs> this is part of my best so, life okay okay and how do you take care of yourself I always say taking care of myself is a work in progress. <laughs> I am definitely a work in progress. Leaning into all the love in my life, right? And that is coming in so many forms. Um, self-care also looks like creating better boundaries, you know, professionally and um, personally. And as a person who was born in a very different context, different culture, with different values and traditions, that can be hard, right? Because there are messages that I've internalized, Oka, about what it means to be a good daughter, a good human being, a good family member that have served me well and that I value tremendously, but that have also been harmful, right? So taking the time to pay attention to the things that have actually been harmful to who I am, and who I want to be in the world has been a form of self-care. Dancing, you know, is my happy place. My coach was reminding me the other day that I must dance every day. So I'm actually running an experiment where I've been dancing every day for the last month and a half, every day, whether it's by myself or with other people. And it opens up That's a awesome. channel that makes the world softer and, and, and clearer. 
So music and dance have been Dance awesome. breaks throughout the day. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and last question, what kind, of, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Ooh, this is one of my favorite questions. Uh, and I have to give a, a shout out to a friend, colleague, Idrissa, who's a Pehera. When I brought up this question a couple of months ago, she was like, you know, it's making me also think about what kind of descendant I am. Hmm. Gotta think mm-hmm. about that, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I want to be an ancestor who was a bridge builder, right? Because of where we started and these very like layered lives that we live and as third culture kids and folks who've lived in different parts of the globe, bridge building, I think it's so important because of the ways in which we've been divided um, across the diaspora and the globe. Uh, Faith is really important to me and guides me uh, spiritually. And I had a mentor really who was my spiritual mother who always talked about answering a calling greater than your fears. And that really is a guiding light in my life, right? So I want to be remembered as an ancestor who remained committed to her God-given purpose, especially in times of fear. Um, I want people to be able to point to the ways in which I lived into into purpose, Um, even when things were really hard. I want to be remembered as an ancestor who lived my truth in life to the fullest. And as a result, modeled what that could be like, because that is my greatest wish and hope for those who come after me. And it guides how I show up and what I'm passionate about and what I fight for and what I try to build. I want future generations to be able to live their truth in life to the fullest and to thrive doing so. So, yeah, those are just some of the things. There's no more to say. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for exploring like the messy work of being human, right? Right. Because it, yeah, it is so complicated and intersectional and sometimes contradictory and um, loved this conversation. So all of the above. Thank you. Thank you so much, Olga. Thank you for being you and for being a badass, brilliant, amazing being in the world. And in so many ways, so, so many ways. And for creating the space for you and I to have this conversation. Thanks for listening. The Future Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com. <laughs>